Good morning, and welcome to Global Beat on CFMU. For those of you listening, we would like to thank you for tuning in to our very first show ever, and we hope to have you as a longtime listener. I'm Layla Mashkor, and I'm a master's student in the Globalization Institute at McMaster University. Alongside my colleagues, we created this show as a forum to discuss pressing issues in today's world that we feel are not receiving enough coverage. Today's show is going to focus on the world's water crisis. When we search for life on other planets, we look for water first. It is the most basic source of life, and yet it is not available to everyone because water is becoming privatized and distributed solely based on profit motives. To talk about this issue today, we will have Rami Abouzidane, a fellow globalization student who just returned to Canada after visiting Kenya as part of the UN Water Without Borders program. He will be joining us shortly to tell us about his time in Kenya. But first, we will be joined by Doran Hodge from the Globalization Department to tell us a few things about water commodification and putting this whole water crisis into a Canadian context. So, Doran, what do you have for us today? Thanks, Leila. Basically, in Canada, we, we tend to look at water as having infinite supply. But unfortunately, this assumption is false. Available fresh water amounts to uh, less than half of 1% of the water on Earth, uh, and the rest is seawater and frozen and polar ice. Fresh water is, renew- is renewable only by rainfall uh, at a rate of 40 to 50,000 cubic meters per year. And due to the intense urbanization and deforest- uh, deforestation, uh, water diversion and industrial farming, a small amount of freshwater resources are disappearing. Um, and the Earth's surface is drying in, in the process, so in this process of desertification. If the present trends persist, uh, the water in all river basins on every continent um, are expected to be steadily depleted. So globalization, or global context, so I'm from the globalization department. So global, global consumption of water is doubling almost every 20 years. So that's more than twice the rate of human population growth. And according to the United Nations, more than 1 billion people on the earth um, already lack access to clean drinking water. If you sort of look at this in terms of current trends, by 2025, the demand for for fresh water is expected to rise to 56%, uh, more than the amount that is currently available. Basically, what this looks at is that the water crisis is intensifying. Governments around the world are under pressure from transnational corporations, this other element of globalization, and and are advocating for these sort of radical-type solutions. Uh, And so one of these solutions is privatization and commodification uh, and also diversion of water from different areas that actually have water. Um, So proponents of this process of commodification, I guess, would say uh, that such a system is the only way to distribute water uh, to the world's thirsty peoples. So meanwhile, (laughs) the future of one of Earth's most vital resources, water, is being determined by those who who profit from its overuse and abuse. So a handful of transnational corporations backed by the World Bank are aggressively taking over the management of public water services in developing countries. So dramatically rising the price of water to the local residents and, and profiting from the world's desperate search for solutions to, water, to this water crisis. The agenda is clear for a lot of these transnational corporations uh, that water should be treated like any other tradable good and its use is, uh, should be determined uh, by market principles. So at the same time, governments are signing away their control of domestic water supplies by participating in trade agreements such as the North America Free Trade Agreement, uh, its successor, the Free Trade Area of the Americas, and the World Trade Organization. So these global trade institutions effectively give transnational corporations unprecedented access to water 
So already, corporations have started to sue governments in order to gain access to domestic water issues. And because we're in Canada, I'll give a Canadian example. So Sunbelt, a California company, is suing the government of Canada under the North America Free Trade Agreements because British Columbia is, is banning water exports and has been doing so for several years. So the company claims that, the B, that BC's law violates the NAFTA, uh, based uh, investor rights, and therefore is claiming $10 billion in compensation for lost profits. Um, at stake is this notion of the commons, and I mean, this is sort of a new idea for lots of people, but it's a rather older idea, that the idea that through our public institutions we recognize a shared human and natural heritage uh, to be preserved for future generations. So water, you know, is something that's common to us all, and maybe as humans we should recognize the value in keeping it a common commodity. Thanks, Doran. That's very interesting. And I think most Canadians consider the idea of running out of water to be absolutely ridiculous. I really don't think we realize how close to home this crisis really hits. Can you tell us more about how Canada is handling its water? Sure. It's true. I mean, in Canada, we have lots of clean and abundant water. And and we sort of take that idea for granted. And, and I would suggest, and I think a lot of other people would suggest that we shouldn't be doing that. To begin, climate change is altering the precipitation patterns in Canada and increasing drought uh, in some areas uh, and flooding others. And I mean, if you look at Alberta, this is a prime example because, I mean, the Palliser Triangle, which is in southern Alberta, has the desert some years and, and some years in the spring, it's, you know, have major topical sort of land flooding going on. So simultaneously, demand for water uh, and threats to clean supplies are both increasing as our populations grow and industry, especially in the energy sector, uh, continues to re- require greater amounts of water. So to, despite technological improvements, the tar sands in, in Alberta, for example, and, and in Saskatchewan in the northern part, uh, use considerable amounts of water and pollute rivers and groundwater in the process. And then another uh, problem that we have is hydraulic fracturing. And I don't know if you've heard this, it's fracking where they take... Um, a bunch of chemicals pumping into the ground to fracture the ground virtually and to remove the natural gas from shale deposits. And then also actually here in Ontario, we have nuclear plants, which require vast amounts of water as well and actually change uh, aquatic ecosystems by heating the water up. So the consequences uh, of water shortages and contamination uh, are severe and numerous. Many of us remember uh, the tragedy in in Walkerton, Ontario, which is just down the road from here in Hamilton, in 2000, when seven people died. As many as 2,300 became ill from drinking wells contaminated with high levels of E. coli bacteria. I mean, this is, I mean, we think of these these things happening in, in the periphery or in the third world countries, but I mean, they happen here in Canada as well. And then, I mean, if you've been watching the news lately, Canadian First Nations populations deal disproportionately with the amount and quality of water uh, and availability of water. And so, for example, I mean, there's the, um, if I pronounce this wrong, my apologies, but the Wagamasic First Nations Reservation in northern Manitoba, who built uh, a water treatment plant five years ago, but haven't been able to install piping uh, to distribute among its residents. So they say 60% of the population of, of that reservation, so it's 1,500 residents still have no indoor plumbing and have to resort to outhouses and slop pails and these sorts of things. Um, And that sewage must be hauled away uh, by tanker trucks and water hauled in by tanker trucks. I mean, it's been quoted by the uh, University of Alberta Ecology Professor David uh, Schindler has stated that water scarcity will become one of the most important economic and environmental issues in the 21st century in the Western Prairie provinces. So we, we must consider what will become 
uh, of people as water becomes scarce and uh, contaminated. And along with other issues around, the, uh, around climate change, this could trigger even massive re- refugee crises here in Canada. Maybe not immediately, but I mean, it's already happening in, in other parts of the world. Very interesting. And so you paint a very dark picture. So naturally, I'm wondering, what can we do to help prevent this crisis from getting worse? Is there any light at the end of this tunnel? It's true. It does paint a pretty dismal picture. I mean, there's a lot of issues coming along with water shortage in Canada and around the world. And and most people are thinking, like, what could I do about this process? So I guess as individuals, we can conserve water. In Canada, uh, we use twice as much water per capita as Europeans do. So first, I think by raising awareness of our consumption, um, by installing uh, low-flow plumbing, uh, using landscaping that doesn't require as much water, we can make a bit of a difference there. But I think governments have also have to take a huge role in this process as well. Um, they could start by, by metering um, and providing disinc- disincentives for high water use. This could help with conservation. Uh, regulations also need to be put in place for industrial consumers. I mean, these are the big users of, of water in, in, in the Canadian context. And they need to adopt uh, production processes that use less water and purify the water before it's released back into the natural environment. Perhaps, most importantly, governments need to tackle the challenge of climate change as well. I mean, of late, there hasn't uh, been a lot of movement, and actually there's been some regressive movement on that. But the leading cause of water shortages in Canada is, is climate change, right? Um, so among the uh, the benefits of protecting clean water supplies is human health. Addressing climate change could also strengthen the economy. An analysis conducted last year by the Western Climate Initiative showed that addressing climate change, which would address water shortages, and fostering clean energy solutions could lead to cost savings of about $100 billion by 2020 for initiatives of member states and provinces within Canada. Um, So among this discussion... um, of water as a finite resource, I I guess I want to conclude maybe with a couple of questions for people to think about. And basically, who owns water and who should own water? Um, Should water be privatized? I mean, we say in Canada that we have a lot of it, so it doesn't really matter if it's privatized. But if we didn't have a lot of water, would it matter if it was privatized? Because that seems to be the trend. We're moving to an area where, where water is becoming more scarce, right? Um, what rights do transnational corporations have to buy water systems? I mean, should uh, in Hamilton a multinational have, have control over our municipal water supplies and should they be able to charge us basically whatever they want because they'll have a monopoly on that if they were to own it? And what laws need to be placed to protect water in Canada? Absolutely fascinating. So it's great to have you on air today and we'd like to thank you very much for coming to join us. Thank you as well. Now we have Rami Abuzidin with us. He was in Kenya two weeks ago with the UN Water Without Borders program, and today he will be telling us about his experiences. So can you tell us a bit about the UN Water Without Borders program that you went over to Kenya with? Sure, yeah. So what I'm currently uh, pursuing is a graduate diploma with the United Nations Institute for Water, Environment, and Health, uh, also known as UNU Inwe. And Basically, the program I'm involved in is called Waters Without Borders, and uh, Water Without Borders is a program where um, it tries to bridge the gap between science and policy and vice versa. So a lot of times there's a lot of science that um, is out there, but when it gets into the realm of policy, it's really hard to implement. So the real thrust of this program is to try to bridge this gap and try to make recommendations on how to actually um, implement science into our, our policy and politics 
in everyday settings. Great. And so can you tell us now about some of the water challenges that are facing Kenya? During Reading Week, we went to uh, Kenya, and um, the place we went to is in Kisamu, Kenya. Um, so in that area, they lack fresh water, and um, basically the wells are running dry and they're not properly maintained. And Kisamu uh, is located on Lake Victoria. And Lake Victoria is um, the second biggest freshwater reservoir in the world, the first being the Great Lakes. So this freshwater reservoir, is. there's a lot of problems with, it, with this freshwater reservoir. For one, there has been an invasive species known as the water hyacinth, and this water hyacinth was introduced during the colonial times, and it's an invasive species. And what it does is it chokes up the surface of the water. So a couple of years ago, you could not see Lake Victoria. All you could see was green, uh, this green plant. And basically what it does is it grows on top of the water and it chokes the wildlife. One of the biggest problems is controlling the animals that excrement into this water. And this excrement causes further degradation of the water. So usually when you t take a look at Lake Victoria, there's no fences around the lake. So a lot of these animals actually end up polluting the water and therefore progressing the degradation of the lake. And a lot of people use this water to wash their clothing. Uh, one of the most interesting things I found was that there was a car wash station in the lake. So basically, you would give your car keys to a person and they would drive your car into the lake just to the level where your wheels are submerged. And what they would do is they'd throw water on your car and clean it that way. So you can imagine the problems with that, and especially because the, the cars are not well-maintained there, so you have a lot of leakage into the, the water system. So, for example, the, the oil, the, the gasoline, and other car fluids are easily leaking into the lake and therefore causing further degradation of Lake Victoria. So these problems are really the biggest ones there, and it, it has to do with the lack of education and lack of awareness to these problems. So... Um, I'm sure that they wouldn't be doing this if they knew that this was a problem, but because there's, there's the lack of awareness about these problems, these cases are happening on a daily basis. And another water challenge um, is the processing of, of water. So uh, we visited a treatment plant. It's called Kiwasco, and this was a really eye-opening experience for me. So what they would do is that they would take water from Lake Victoria and then try to treat it so that it becomes drinkable. So one of the main things there is the intake valve. So this is the valve that sucks water from Lake Victoria for processing. And usually in developed countries, this intake valve is in the middle of the lake. And the reason it's in the middle of the lake is so the sediments and any other pollution from the, the shores don't get caught up into the intake valve. So what was eye-opening in Kisamu, Kenya, was that the intake valve was right on the shore. So all the debris and all the pollution and garbage that was floating on the shore was going into this intake valve to be treated. So this was one of the, one of the things that they could improve on, was to actually put the intake valve farther down into Lake Victoria. However, I can imagine that sometimes the funds to do this are not available and they have to come up with alternatives. But if funding was there, this would be the most optimal situation for them to do. Another thing is that people were swimming right beside the intake valve. So this causes problems also because you have all the, the bacteria and pollution from, from people's showers basically going into the intake valve. 
And another thing that was really eye-opening was that is that they add chemicals during the primary and secondary stages of water treatment. And these chemicals are, in theory, supposed to clump up the debris and large bacteria. And uh, once the, they clump up, they're supposed to sink down and let the clean water flow uh, for further processing. However, the, these clumps were not sinking down. They were actually floating on the top. And a uh, reason for this was maybe because it was really hot in Kisamu and therefore due to fluid dynamics, it was floating instead of sinking. So this actually doesn't help the processing of the water and making it more drinkable because all the debris and large bacteria that it's supposed to take out is actually staying there. So this was another problem. So basically, the treatment of water is really ineffective, and it has health implications on the people that drink it because not not everything that is being treated is actually being treated, so to speak. That's fascinating. So what would you tell us was the most memorable experience of your trip there? Well, there was numerous experiences that I thought were memorable. Um, one of them was meeting with the mayor of Kisamu and the mayor of Kisumu was really a really friendly person to talk to and was really intelligent and had high hopes for his city. However, I, I noticed some subtle things, and one of them was that uh, when we were offered drinks, it was all watered bottles. And that speaks to the situation, because uh, going to a mayor uh, you know, and being served water bottles in a city where water is an issue really made me think about the challenges in that city because instead of getting water from the tap, it was bottled water and it was one of the things that I, I thought standed out in this trip. Another, another one was, again, seeing people swim in the lake and just not understanding exactly why they would do that and trying to think from their perspective what's going through their head. Is it the lack of education that these waters are polluted or is it because they have no other way to clean themselves and therefore this is the... Uh, the only solution to doing that. So it was really trying to think in that sense. One other memorable experience uh, was in a rural village outside of Kisamu. So in that village, we were there looking at a local water project uh, that the locals were engaging in. And walking in the village, I came across a little girl who uh, was carrying a water bottle, and it looked like there was maybe juice in there. It was a dark fluid. And basically, a few minutes later, she opened this water bottle and began to drink out of it. She took a few sips and then spit out the fluid, and she then put her hand on her stomach. And upon investigating what the fluid was, it turned out to be really muddy and murky water. And in this water bottle, there was some debris floating on the top. So she was literally drinking polluted water with debris floating on the top. And this was really an eye-opening experience because I couldn't imagine anyone who would drink this. And what we did was we were with my supervisor, Dr. Corin Wallace, and there was a, a well nearby. So we cleaned out that water bottle and we filled it with clean water from the well and gave it to her and, and she was on her way. So it was, it was really unbelievable such an unbelievable experience and hard to imagine this happening in anywhere else in the world. Yeah, definitely. It seems like a very far away experience for those of us here in North mm -hmm. America to even fathom something like that. Yeah, for sure. So can you tell us about some of the strategies used to bring about change in freshwater supply and management to rural communities in Kenya? 
Um, we visited a village nearby the airport, and this village used to depend on bore wells, which uh, were located near the airport. It was a common sight to see women carrying buckets of water while one is landing in the airport in Kisumu. However, with the expansion of the airport, the area was fenced in with wires, and so this could not happen anymore. So the local leaders say that they agreed on compensation by the government. However, the amount that they received was not worth it in retrospect. The water company, which is Kiwasco, had technical problems in delivering water to this remote village. So the villagers had to depend on water vendors who came to that small town and charged water for really high prices. So basically, the answer to your question is basically to really empower locals to take on the roles of bettering their communities themselves. And the uh, supervisor for this trip, Dr. Corin Wallace, was really involved in bringing together all the actors involved in this situation. So, for example, the locals in that village, the elders in that village, the water company, Kiwasco, and government officials as well. And they also included the developmental agencies, such as the UN, who were basically mediating a solution for this problem. And in the end, there was a solution to this problem by showing the economical benefits that it would bring to deliver water for the water company, and at the same time, showing what it means for the local people there to receive this water supply. So basically, sometimes... To get things done, one has to show the benefits to all the parties involved and what it means for them. And this is the the best strategy that is used. So it's basically empowering locals to take on the, the capacity to do things themselves rather than having someone just set up a, a well and assume that everything will be taken care of. For example, there was an agency that built schools in Kenya in this village but they can't use these schools because there's no fresh water available. So you hear these stories about people going and building schools, but if you don't have the infrastructure to actually keep up the services, the infrastructure is not going to hold through and it's not going to provide all the benefits that it was intended to. So therefore, it's good to look at the overall picture and, and empower the locals to actually take on the capacity to do things themselves and train them to really know how to troubleshoot the problem if something happens in the future. Those are all very fascinating insights, and we'd like to thank you for coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you today. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. And that's our show for today. Thank you very much for tuning in to Global Beat. And tune in next week, Tuesdays at 9.30 a.m. on 93.3 CFMU. Have a great day. When I first met you, it was all I could remember. And the feeling ran true from May to September.
and true Well, from May to September Well, my love's gotta grow Let it 